Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. This week's episode is brought to you by NPR One. From smartphones to smart speakers, NPR One's customizable sponsorship opportunities let your brand's message be heard everywhere. And NPR's audience holds a more positive opinion of brands that sponsor NPR One. Learn more about connecting your brand with NPR One listeners at npr.org slash sponsorship. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, TV, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, welcome back. Thanks a lot for having me. And uh, also joining us again is uh, Katie Richards, a staff writer covering the agency world. Welcome back, Katie. Hey, thanks for having me back. And super excited to have back Jason Lynch, our senior editor on the TV beat, because we've got a lot to talk about with fall previews and and everything coming up later this year. Jason, welcome back to the show. Hey, David. Good to be here. And then a little later, we're going to welcome Marty Swant, a technology writer for Adweek, uh, who's going to jump in uh, when we dive into a few of our other later topics. But for now, let's talk about the news. All right. This week, we are dedicating our entire news section to our outlook for fall TV, what's coming, and specifically what's coming in the way of new shows. These are the freshman shows that new networks are or that networks are rolling out. Uh, Jason, uh, you've been previewing these on Adweek.com over the last week, uh, doing a great roundup of what to look forward to and what not necessarily to look forward to. Let's take a big picture view first. What do you think of the crop of freshman shows coming this fall? Well, I don't think very much of them, David. It's uh, it's a pretty bleak fall overall for new shows, and I think probably the bleakest fall in recent memory. Uh, there are 19 new broadcast shows, including the Will and Grace revival, and there's really only two or three that I'm recommending to people, and there's only two or three that I think are also – just completely awful. The rest of them are in this mediocre middle. And in the era of peak TV, when you have 500 scripted shows to choose from each year, you know, mediocre is not going to be enough to cut it. Well, let's talk first about your favorite show. The Fall is actually not on broadcast, but it is a a CBS property. Uh, Tell us about that. 
Uh, yes, that is Star Trek Discovery, which is the new series that launched uh, Sunday night on uh, CBS All Access. The, the first episode premiered on CBS, but from here on in, you're going to have to be a subscriber to their subscription service and to uh, to watch the new episodes. But it was uh, surprisingly good. And this comes from somebody who is not a big Star Trek TV fan. I've watched a couple episodes here and there. But they spent a lot of money on this. They spent it wisely. Uh, Sinequa Martin-Green, who was from The Walking Dead and stars in this one, uh, she's terrific. I'm also a big fan of Jason Isaacs, who will be introduced, uh, I think, in the next episode as uh, the captain of the Discovery. And it's a really, a really strong show and I think this is going to be you know it's the show that CBS access uh, CBS all access needs so uh, on that note it debuted on Sunday um, you know CBS all access the, the idea to put this the uh, to put Star Trek Discovery on only the streaming service that's a bold move I mean uh, obviously Netflix and Amazon and a bunch of other streaming services have strong originals but this is a bold choice to not put this on network TV do you think they made the right call I think they did because their streaming services and CBS Corporation sees both CBS All Access and then their Showtime direct-to-consumer product. Uh, they bundle those together. But that's a really important part of the company's bottom line going forward. They've set very lofty goals of having a combined subscriber numbers uh, for, for both services of $8 million by 2020. And you need a beloved franchise like Star Trek to convince people to shell out six dollars a month to to watch a show like this so um i think this is a show that could could do well on broadcast but this is a show that they needed to put on all access to get some eyeballs to that service so staying on cbs for a second you had picked uh as the as your kind of least uh your lowest ranking show of the new crop is one called wisdom of the crowd i believe this is a jeremy piven procedural involving a crime-solving app? <laughs> am, I, am I describing that right? Uh, yeah, that's as good a subscription as you're likely to get. Um, you know, I'm not a huge Jeremy Piven fan, but that's also not why I don't like this show. I think the bigger problem is that it is the third show in the past year to revolve around an unlikable tech guru who uses his bank account and state-of-the-art technology to try and fix an essential public ser service. Uh, we previously saw that in CBS's uh, medical drama Pure Genius last year and and Fox's, uh, I guess, police drama APB, both of which were quickly canceled. And I just – CBS obviously hasn't learned from any mistakes. Uh, this has all the same problems of those shows. And out of CBS's new shows, all of which are engineered to – to kind of be perfectly calibrated for uh, CBS's audience who loves procedurals, loves big, broad comedies. This is the one that uh, just isn't the right fit. I, I love the idea of someone like throwing darts at a board of random, like hot terminology, and they hit, you know, crowdsourcing, apps, Jeremy Piven, procedural. <laughs> and they're like, we got a show, everybody. <laughs> the uh, the the one you picked as your the one and we've mentioned this before when we've had you on uh, Young Sheldon uh, obviously the Big Bang spinoff uh, you have a lot of faith in that and and it sounds like it was uh, it paid off uh, you're you were happy with how the show actually turned out yeah this one I was. Uh 
was pleasantly surprised, uh, most of all because it's not kind of a Big Bang clone, but the tone is completely different. This is really more of a Wonder Years-style show. You follow Sheldon as a nine-year-old growing up in East Texas in 1989. Jim Parsons, who plays the adult song, uh, Sheldon, narrates kind of like Wonder Years had, you know, the adult Kevin narrate that show. And it's a really sweet show. It's a nice fit with Big Bang, but it also is a show that non-Big Bang viewers, and my, including myself, uh, can can find a way into and really enjoy. Now, let's jump to ABC, uh, where I feel like uh, the low point uh, it, that you had picked for the new shows is one that sounds like it's shared by just about everyone with eyeballs and a brain who has looked at the lineup of what's coming. It is Marvel's Inhumans, which from, I feel like the day that that first trailer dropped, everyone was like, wow, this looks awful. Yeah, people have been complaining from the first trailer, the Comic-Con trailer, uh, at every point in this process and it's just it's just awful. It's it's a Marvel scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, they're very obviously overextended. This was a project that was first announced as a movie and I feel like maybe there was some you know contractual language there that required them to make this in some form. So instead you have this as a TV show, but it's low rent Marvel and it's just something that you should avoid at all costs. <laughs> the, the warmest review. The uh, and then the high point being the mayor. I feel like I've this is one of the most buzzed about shows. This is a show about a uh, kind of an amateur rapper, aspiring rapper who uh, runs for mayor at first on a lark uh, in his town, and then ends up kind of discovering more. It looks like from the trailers about you know the the reality of the issues that his town is facing, and he ends up getting elected. Uh, and so, you know, I think this is one where a lot of people were kind of withholding judgment uh, because it has some great talent involved. Uh, and I think the trailer looks great. But when you hear the concept, a rapper becomes mayor uh, and it's it's a comedy. Uh, you know, there's so much room for that to be problematic, but it sounds like it turned out really well. It did. And you're right. This was a, a show that when I first heard about it, it just seemed like it was going to fall on its face. And this one, there's a lot of promise there. The general rule with comedy pilots is that comedies are never fully formed. The, uh, in that first season, the writers have to figure out the style of their actors, figure out the tone of the series and really start to kind of evolve and, and write to the cast that they have. So the mayor isn't perfect, but the pilot has so much potential. Brandon Michael Hall, who plays the rapper, is great. Uh, Yvette Nicole Brown, who you know from Community, plays his mom. She's terrific. Uh, Leah Michelle from Glee is in there. She's a bit of a, a, a tougher fit, but I, I feel like you know the the contrast between her and and everybody else in the show is going is going to you know work out really well. I, also at at, at TCA Press Tour, this panel was phenomenal. And to me, that's always a sign that the cast has great chemistry. And if the show can figure that out, they're going to be in really good shape. Now on Fox, it sounds like it's all sci-fi all the time uh, this season. Uh, they, you know, I feel like the one I've heard the most about was also the one you ranked lowest. I haven't gotten a chance to check it out, but the Orville, uh, which is one of the most confusing shows. I feel like the way it's marketed and the way people are talking about it are two very different things. Yeah, absolutely. When the Orville was first announced back at the upfront in May, it was marketed as Seth MacFarlane's Galaxy Quest. Basically, this was going to be a, a satire of, of shows like Star Trek. And there's a little bit of that in the first episode, but when you get into episodes two and three, the tone shifts and it's just very surprising 
surprisingly straight. Uh, there's one or two jokes in there, but this is he's trying to be serious about this and it doesn't really work. Uh, Fox spent a lot of money on this as, as CBS all access did with star Trek and star Trek, that money is a really good investment and Orville just kind of sits there. Yeah. That, that one, you know, it's, it looks good, you know, the previews, everything, I, I, but it is just so confusing. It'll be interesting to see. And, and I think we're seeing kind of Seth MacFarlane's uh, competing internal, uh, you know, aspects. This is a guy who helped create the new version of Cosmos, uh, but he also, you know, of course, is family guy. And so you just never really know what to expect from him. And he is the star of it, too. And he's not really leading man material. So, that, so that's kind of, you know, he just doesn't look the part in a way. Um, Again, yeah, if, if this had been a comedy, if this had been Galaxy Quest, then I think he would have been, you know, a decent fit for the, the lead role. But when you're you're trying to tackle issues like episode three t- tackled a, a transgender and uh, an issue and, and it it's just doesn't work. It doesn't work with that cast. That cast is good for comedy. They're not good for for a, like a controversy over over a transgender character in the show. Yeah. No, and when you mentioned um, shows that take a season or so for the writers to really kind of get their feet under it. The first ones I thought about and that I think everyone kind of thinks about are The Office and Parks and Rec. Uh, and we actually have alumni from both of those in the show that you see as kind of the best of the lot for Fox uh, is Ghosted. Tell us about that one. So Ghosted, as you said, you've got alums from Office and Parks and Rec. Craig Robinson is a former LAPD detective. He teams up with Adam Scott, who is a kind of fired and disgraced astrophysics professor. Um, They're recruited by a secret government agency to examine unexplained paranormal uh, paranormal activity in L.A. And it's, yes, it's like kind of like the X-Files, a comedic version of the X-Files, but it really ends up being more like Ghostbuster. You know, the mix of comedy, there's some scares in there. Like the mayor, it's not fully formed yet, but there's a lot of potential there, especially with those two uh, stars who really have a great chemistry together. Now, the last two networks we're going to talk about, NBC and The CW, both of those seem to be really hinging on uh, bringing back uh, kind of older properties. In the case of NBC, Will and Grace, uh, not all that old of a property, but with The CW, they're bringing back Dynasty. (laughs) So tell us about uh, kind of how much of their hopes are riding on those two shows on those networks. Well, for NBC, they're in great shape this season. They've got the Super Bowl. They've got the Winter Olympics. They've got SNL, which is going to be airing live across all time zones again. And they have This Is Us, which was last year's biggest show. So all of their new shows could tank and they would be fine. But they also have Will and Grace. And that is the best of a mediocre crop from them in the fall. Uh, that show is is really picks up right where it left off the for opening moments of the new uh, episode basically throw out everything that happened in the season fin- a series finale uh, to kind of make happy endings for all of them and completely puts them back in the status quo. So if you like those first eight, eight seasons, I think you're going to like what you see here. If you didn't like those first eight seasons, there is no reason for you to start watching now. And uh, and Dynasty? Yeah, Dynasty is a little different uh, approach for the CW. You know, they they have had this great run with superhero shows and kind of critically acclaimed shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Jane the Virgin. But until Riverdale last uh, spring, they haven't had a show kind of in, in that soapy vein of Gossip Girl and some of the shows that put CW on the map, uh, you know, a decade ago. So Dynasty is their attempt to do that again. They have two of the executive producers of the of 
of Gossip Girl and also the OC are putting this together. So they're rebooting it, unlike Dallas uh, a couple years ago, which brought the original cast back and then also put a younger younger generation is uh, in. This one completely hits the re- reset button, and you've got new actors playing playing Blake, playing Crystal. There's no Alexis yet, but I'm sure she'll be coming. And uh, it, it this one kind of focuses more on Fallon, like the, the, the younger generation. It's a CW show, so that's what you expect. And it's got everything from the original Dynasty. It's got catfights. It's got backstabbing. It's got... You know, everybody cheating on everybody else, and uh, you know that's that would be a season's worth of storylines in the original di- dynasty, and we've got that all in the pilot. So uh, now, now uh, Jason and I have obviously been dominating this conversation. Katie, are there any new shows you're looking forward to? Well, after that description of dynasty, <laughs> I'm so in on that. Um, I'm also a big uh, Gossip Girl and OC fan, so I feel like I just kind of have to check it out um, just to kind of see what it's all about. I never watched the original, so that could be. A fun one, but um, the mayor also looks really good, and I'm a big Leah Michelle fan as well, so I think I'll be tuning in for that as well. Tim, anything you're looking forward to? You know, my TV intake has gone way down lately. I mean, I'm, I've been streaming some shows, um, but you know, honestly, the young Sheldon looks pretty funny. Um, I saw that kid on the Emmys. Um, when I saw him, I was like, "Wow, how old is that that kid?" It turns out he's about a month older than my oldest son, uh, a month younger oh, wow. than than my oldest son. So. Um, my son's clearly not uh, pulling his weight in the in the <laughs> um, celebrity. Put department. him to work. Yeah, uh, no, but he was. You know, he, he seems like a sort of a remarkable actor. I think he's a grandson of a of a. Is it uh, Richard Armitage? The old. Uh, I think I believe he was in Reagan's cabinet. Um, he's he's got an interesting pedigree. Um, but of course, Big Bang Theory is such a good show, and you know, have it bringing Jim Parsons over to, to narrate. Um, I, I think you've sort of automatically got a winner there. All right. Well, Jason, thank you as always for the roundup, and we're going to let you get back to work. We're going to rotate in uh, Marty Swant, but thank you for jumping on the show. We sure appreciate it. Yeah, always great to be here. Thanks. All right. Now let's move on to my favorite part of the show each week, where Tim rounds up the best ads of the week. We call it ads worth watching. Tim, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week I wanted to talk actually about print advertising, um, which is this weird old thing uh, where you actually print ads on pieces of paper. I don't know if you ever, you guys have ever heard of this, but um, no, yeah, it, 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 it was you know it's from probably the '60s or so. Um, but anyway, uh, one of these ads is uh, David. You wrote about this. It's for the Snowbird Ski Resort uh, out in Utah. And uh, this was a pretty funny ad. I, I guess it's good. There's going to be three or four, maybe even more ads. Um, but they're print spreads. They're running in a bunch of ski magazines and elsewhere. And they um, rely on uh, one-star reviews of the resort. So people who went to the resort uh, hated it for whatever reason and, and wrote up somewhere online uh, a one-star review. And uh, Snowbird has gotten a hold of these reviews and is running a bunch of them um, because the reviews are mostly from people who, uh, for whom the, the, the terrain was too challenging. Um, so the example that we posted today... Um, a guy for a guy named Greg from Los Angeles says, uh, apparently he gave Snowbird a one-star review. It says too, he wrote too advanced. I've heard Snowbird's a tough mountain, but this is ridiculous. Uh, it felt like every trail was a steep shooter littered with tree wells. How is anyone supposed to ride in that? Not fun. Uh, so <laughs> I love the very like Trumpian in there. Not fun. Uh, yes. Yeah. Trump, it, Trump probably would have phrased it very similarly. Um, 
Yeah, so they're running a bunch of these, and I mean, it's not revolutionary, but it's pretty fun to see, you know, a, a company embracing neg- negative reviews. We've seen this over the years. I think there was that Scotch brand, David, that you also liked, did that with negative reviews, right? They they got people um, on camera talking about how much they dislike the Scotch. Was that Lafroix? Um, oh, Lefroig, yeah. Lefroig's yeah. been running those opinions. I think they call it like opinions wanted. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, yeah, that's a good. Lefroig is my favorite scotch, and they um, and and it is very divisive. And so you're right. You know, when we when we wrote about this, it's it's one of those things where you don't you don't want readers to think we're saying this is the coolest newest idea that no one's ever had. <laughs> right. I, you know, turning a one star review into a positive is certainly something we've seen a lot in very clever ways. You see it most with restaurants and bars. Um, you know, like you see a lot of photos of those, like those signs out in front of a bar that say, you know, come see the bar that one, you know, one Yelp reviewer said, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and then it's like this really negative, it's the worst, the worst of Manhattan I've ever had in my life. <laughs> totally. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I think we linked to a, a few of our favorites uh, from the write-up, um, but, you know, there was a, a bar that uh, made a t-shirt out of the one about uh, how, you know, like, the drinks are the drinks are good, but everything else is awful, or the music is awful, or something. They turned that into their their t their official T shirt, um, and uh, and then there was the room, of course, the terrible terrible uh, uh, movie that there is now a a movie about the making of that movie. But the uh, they really kind of reveled in the one star reviews and promoted those as well. But uh, you know, I think this is a, what what we haven't really discussed uh, that's so great about this campaign is that it's these lush, gorgeous two-page spread ads, which, you know, is a somewhat rarity these days, period. Uh, but, you know, this beautiful cinematic kind of uh, picture of a ski resort, and then and then you've got this tiny text that's just complaining about it. <laughs> and the, to me, that, that contrast works so well. It's by an agency called Struck uh, that's, I believe, headquartered in, Saint, uh, in Salt Lake City, uh, which is also, you know, pretty close to where Snowbird is. Um, and they just did a fantastic job. And, and as you mentioned, it sounds like they've got four four more of these that are going to roll out. They're going to be running in just about every kind of ski magazine you can think of. They're also going to be running them as digital ads and in their social. Uh, but we've gotten a huge response to this just since posting. It's one where I kind of wondered, are people going to say, oh, this is brilliant? Or are people going to say, ah, we've seen this idea a hundred times. But, you know, sometimes an idea done a hundred times but done really well uh, is, is worth it. What else have you got for us, Tim? Well, the other print ad I wanted to talk about uh, comes from LL Bean, uh, which is the outdoor retailer. And they made a pretty interesting ad that was published uh, last Friday in the New York Times. Uh, and and when, when you opened up the New York Times, it, the, the ad looked mostly blank. Uh, it just said, uh, the, wor- the, co- the only copy really said, uh, just bring this outside. And the words were kind of scattered around uh, in the middle of a blank page. And then when you actually took it outside, um, the ad is actually printed with um, a very special kind of ink. I believe it's called photochromic ink. Uh, and when the UV rays from the sun uh, hit the ad, it brings out all this other copy. And so basically it's like invisible ink um, that... that uh, that shows up in the sunlight, which is, you know, really great for, for an outdoor retailer like L.L. Bean, that, that they made an ad that you can only read uh, outdoors. Uh, created by the VIA Agency, uh, right here in Portland, Maine, actually. Uh, they're kind yeah, of... hometown for, agency for you. Yeah, so um, it's been an interesting year for VIA because they... Um, for many, many years, of course, they would, they wanted the L.L. Bean account. Uh, L.L. Bean has gone out of state. You know, L.L. Bean is, is Maine's biggest retailer. They've used agencies all over the country. Uh, Irwin Penland most recently. Before that, I believe they were at Martin Williams, way out in the Midwest. So they've used 
you know, tons of out-of-state agencies over the years. And VIA um, this spring uh, won a competitive review uh, to finally uh, be the agency, the, the lead creative agency for, for Bean. Uh, they beat out Droga 5, among other shops, in that review. So that was a pretty big deal for them. And they've been rolling out TV spots uh, since the summer, um, but this, you know, this ad is is pretty clever. This this newspaper ad, and it's getting them um, quite a bit of press uh, on Friday. So yeah, I just thought it's not the first time. Again, you know, we, we were talking about the the the, the ski ad before, uh, how that wasn't exactly revolutionary. This isn't really either. Um, a, f- a few years ago in Cannes, the design Grand Prix went to uh, a solar company that had printed their annual report completely in photochromic ink. Uh, and in fact, Coors Light up in Canada just a few months ago started releasing cans that were printed partly in, in photochromic ink, where you take the, the, the can outside and um, all these different colorful patterns show up on the outside of the can. So not necessarily a new idea, um, but I really liked it because it really fits in um, you know, with, with L.L. Bean's uh, brand message here, which is Be an, Be an Outsider, which is their new, um, their new tagline just introduced a month or two ago. And, you know, great buy in the times, um, really great PR value from this, uh, and a, just a fun creative idea. Man, between this and, uh, you know, a, mag- a great magazine ad and a great newspaper ad, this is, uh, you know, here's hoping we're seeing a resurgence in great print. You know, it's, it's funny, like I'm on that uh, Epica Awards jury that's judged by journalists. Uh, internationally, and every year we get so excited about print because it's just got this universality that that TV and video doesn't. Um, you know, like the ideal print, the best print, all these judges from around the world really resonate with. But man, every year fewer and fewer entries. Uh, you know, it's just been it's going down. You, you don't see this kind of innovation as often. Yeah, and innovation is one thing. You know, print, what, what print also does for creatives, it just teaches them the fundamentals of art direction and copywriting. I mean, very few... Uh, it's not a sexy category uh, medium anymore. You know, even out of home is, is more fun for creatives to work on because it's, you know... Uh, that, that seems to have more creative possibilities. Um, but, you know, when you when tr- introduce an interesting tech like the Bean thing or just a, an interesting uh, media hack like using uh, internet reviews uh, like the, the ski ad did, there's definitely possibilities and there's definitely a way to, to be creative along with learning the fundamentals uh, when you make a print ad. All right. Well, thanks so much, Tim. We're going to move on to our big discussion of the week. All right. It is Advertising Week New York. Uh, As we publish this episode, uh, agencies and brands are descending from all over the world onto New York City, the ones that weren't here already. Uh, And they are going to be taking part in a week-long conference, uh, which, just to clarify, is not related to us. We are Ad Week. This is Advertising Week, which is an event. It's annual you know confusion for everyone involved and we get tagged on a lot of stuff but whatever we all we all seem to get along okay <laughs> um I wanted to talk about uh, a few of the big things. Uh, first, uh, Tim, just linger on you for a second, but also Katie as well. What what sets Advertising Week apart from these other conferences that we go to, whether it's South by or Can? Like, what what kind of defines Advertising Week from the others? Well, I think you know, at its most basic, it's just that it's explicitly about advertising and brand marketing, um, and it's also not primarily an award show. Uh, it is. I believe last year, uh, Advertising Week did partner with uh, the DNAD to introduce the DNAD Impact Awards, uh, which are an official Advertising Week event now. I think it's happening Tuesday night this week. 
Uh, it's a new award show that seeks to celebrate creative ideas that have had an, a real impact uh, towards making, uh, a, I think their phrase is a better, fairer, and more sustainable future for all. Uh, and Clio Awards are happening this week, too, on Wednesday night. So there's a lot of awards around Advertising Week. Um, but unlike Can, the, the real focus of Advertising Week is the programming. You know, it's the panels, it's the parties, it's the networking. And, you know, unlike South By, which has a much broader focus, unlike Can, which is really just about the, the Lions primarily, uh, it's just about talking about where the where the industry is and where, it's, and where it's headed. That's what this week's all about. What do you think about it, Katie? Yeah, it seems like, you know, it kind of differs year to year, but um, I always kind of notice that it's typically more agencies that are participating as opposed to the clients. I mean, each year you kind of see more clients coming to Advertising Week and speaking on panels with their agencies. But usually I notice um, a lot of agencies, also a lot of students come. And I know that's not kind of unique to conferences, but it's kind of cool just to, to see all the students sitting in um, on the sessions. Now, I haven't officially welcomed uh, Marty Swant, uh, our technology reporter. Marty, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, David. And um, before we get into your cover story, which is in our uh, Advertising Week preview issue, uh, did you get to go last year? And, and what, what are your thoughts on Advertising Week? Yeah, I did. This will be my third Advertising Week, I think. Actually, the first time was when I was just joining Adweek, so it's always a sweet time of year looking back. <laughs> nice. But, um, yeah, so you're asking about last year versus zero. Yeah, just, you know, what, what do you think of it? You know, it, it's interesting because I think there are a lot of heavy hitters that come and talk about, you know, a variety of topics, of course. But I always wonder, like, how much of it is just pontificating and how much of this will actually move the industry forward in some way or what kind of insights will actually have an impact over the next 12 months I, I, I can't think of anything in particular from last year where I maybe went to a panel and now it's actually coming a reality now, but I'm sure that maybe others have thought of things that I have maybe forgotten. But I, I don't know. Maybe I'm not the only one that thinks that. It, it certainly is a place that um, a lot of announcements are saved for Advertising Week. I think just especially because you have all these players in one in one place. Uh, so even if they don't actually physically hear your announcement, the word tends to get around. Uh, you wrote a cover story for us this week uh, about one of those announcements, which is the unveiling of Watson Advertising from IBM. Uh, first of all, if you can just give us the kind of uh, explain it to me like I'm five. What is the uh, what is Watson Advertising? Indeed, I did. Yeah. So, so Watson Advertising is uh, IBM's official unveiling of this uh, pretty much this brand new suite of services that rolls in a, a number of components from the weather company, which IBM acquired last year. Uh, I don't know if you guys how many people know this, but. Uh, Every 15 minutes, actually, the weather company pr produces forecasts for 2.2 billion locations. And, and so that's a lot of data looking at, you know, the weather and everything that goes into that. And so what they're going to be doing is doing more uh, essentially ad targeting, but also using AI uh, to um, just roll that data and every other data that IBM has, Watson has, or that uh, brands and agencies have that they want to target against or even just to, to understand insights uh, that you can use machine learning and deep learning for. Now, we obviously hear about Watson more and more in the last few years. It's become something that's involved in uh, you know a lot of interesting kind of marketing innovations. But what does this do to kind of advance that forward? And it feels like this democratizes, I guess, uh, Watson in a way. It opens it up to more agencies and more brands to to participate with more easily without having to kind of build necessarily a custom Watson integration each time. Is that correct? Am I kind of 
summarizing it right? Yeah, I don't know if I would say democratizes because, I mean, depending on what you're using with Watson, it can be pretty expensive. I've, I've heard some of these campaigns people are running are in the millions. And so, um, and obviously not every agency or brand has millions of dollars at their disposal to experiment on artificial intelligence. But what I think it definitely does is, is, is it brings AI and marketing to uh, a bit more of a mainstream, kind of like Watson has done as a brand over the last five, six years on its own right. Um, yeah, because AI is often touted as, as a buzzword these days, but at the same time, there are so many uses of it. It, it, it almost, I think some people pitch it or think of it as, as magic in some way, rather than understanding how exactly data and machine learning and, and programming all come together. Now, it, you specifically mentioned one agency that's been kind of playing with this before its uh, official unveiling, which is UM or Universal McCann, uh, the media agency. What have they been doing with it? Yeah, sure. So uh, just as a, as a bit more context, so there's, there's four different uh, kind of segments of Watson advertising. There's audience targeting, there's bidding optimization, There there is, uh, you know, Powered media, AI powered media planning, and then there's uh, Watson ads, which you know is, is more on the content creation side of things. But yeah, so McCann has actually been using it for a few different brands lately since I think earlier this year. Uh, there's an auto brand that they've been using for uh, a, a car dealership. <laughs> there's the word. <laughs> I'm like, I haven't bought a car in probably seven years, so I forget where to, where you go for those things. But it's a, it's a luxury car brand um, that's that's been using this product. And um, so they're using it to essentially localize ad campaigns at scale. Uh, so they're, they're using Watson data with client stats and inventory to, uh, yeah, just to figure out car dealerships and then optimizing campaigns based on that. So it's a way of having this massive, massively scaled campaign, but at a local level. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The you know the weather, uh, the you know the for those who haven't been following what Weather Channel's been doing in the last few years, it really was revolutionary stuff. I mean, we're go we're going back almost a decade on. Uh, they were playing around with what used to be called day parting. You know, where you'd run different ads at night than you would during the day. Um, that's you know that goes back decades. But they started doing stuff like if it starts to rain, you'll advertise like fresh windshield wipers, and you know versus if it's sunny, you'll advertise car washes. You know, it's that idea of just because they obviously know where the weather is or you know what it's going to be they can switch those ads up on the fly and so it's kind of neat to see that idea uh you know which obviously that technology was bought by ibm but to see that rolling out to you know all sorts of different kinds you know not just weather but uh all sorts of things that can be customized really interesting stuff yeah and there's another campaign more related to weather that uh mccann's been doing uh, where they're looking at pollen counts and google searches to figure out like where this um uh, this pharmaceutical company should be buying ads based on where allergies might be high. But I was going to say, yeah, so, I mean, some some people have used it, but, I mean, IBM is certainly not the only company that's getting into AI uh, or AI advertising. You know, uh, Salesforce and Adobe are all uh, rolling out their own suites of services, and then you have a lot of smaller startups that are 20, 30 people that are um, reportedly a lot less expensive than Watson, and, and so, um, and they're a lot more targeted in their capabilities. And so uh, Watson's not, just want to clarify, like, 
IBM is not the first company to be doing this. Well, it's a very interesting uh, package that they'll be announcing. I certainly recommend everyone check out Marty's uh, cover story on Adweek this year. It's, uh, it, or this week, it's on uh, adweek.com, of course. Uh, so you can check it out there, along with all of our other Advertising Week uh, coverage and previews. Katie, uh, you also worked on an interesting story uh, about an announcement that's coming. It sounds like, uh, like a lot of brands, HP, uh, the tech company, had put out a call, a mandate, some might say, for their agencies to embrace diversity a little better. Uh, and they're going to be announcing the results uh, next week. And you got a, a preview look at that. Uh, I guess, how did the agencies do overall? So they did mildly okay, I guess you could say. <laughs> That's um, what everyone shoots for. <laughs> yeah, they. I mean, they definitely improved. So HP sent out a letter to its five agency partners last year. Um, and when it comes to getting more women in leadership and creative positions and just across the board, they did very well. Um, now 61% of HP's worldwide agency account teams are made up of women, and that kind of beats they, – they had set a goal um, – of I believe about 55%. So they beat that. But when it comes to people of color, and as they're calling it underrepresented groups, uh, the the CMO just kind of kept saying, we have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. So the numbers there are not looking great. Now, um, one thing that's interesting is they did parse out exactly what they mean by including women in leadership. Uh, you know, I don't know how granular they got, but it's one of those things for anyone in the agency world knows that there are certain ways to cop out on diversity and on gender balance by saying like, you know, 60% of our account management team or our account team is is female. Well, that's, you know, that's not a, a sector that's been traditionally difficult for women to get roles in. Um, that's not to say they shouldn't be applauded for that. But, you know, it's it's like saying our PR team is largely women or, you know what I mean? It's uh, it's a, sometimes seen as a bit of a cop-out. But they actually did specify that they wanted to see more women in creative leadership, and that is certainly an area. Uh, where women have, have struggled to get equal opportunity in the advertising industry. Uh, tell us about those numbers, because those seem pretty dramatic uh, of of the improvement they saw with their agencies on creative leadership and including women. Yeah, so they called out two agencies in particular, BBDO and Fred and Fareed. Um, and at BBDO, when it came to creative leadership, I guess going into this, they had zero women in creative leadership positions, which is pretty shocking. Yeah, on, uh, on this but, account, we should specify, on, on the yes, uh, HP yes, account. Yes, yeah. on the HP account. Um, and they boosted that up to 40% in just a year. And then for Fred and Fareed, it was the same zero on the HP account, and they ended uh, the year period with 55%. So the numbers there are, are pretty encouraging. Um, you know, you never know if they just kind of reshuffled some people around on their accounts to make that work. But um, HP was having quarterly check-ins with each of their agencies. So I'm assuming they were, you know, making sure that all new hires, you know, they, they were in, ensuring that there were diverse candidates um, on the table. And uh, obviously it paid off in that respect. Yeah, I mean, th that those numbers going from zero to 40% female and zero to 55% female really does show, I think, you know, a lot of us have wondered what the real impact of these client mandates, uh, you know, these are interesting projects, but they're always very, you know, if not polarizing, they're somewhat... Uh, it, they're easy to get bogged down in the arguments because people turn back on these clients and say, well, like, you're not diverse. You know, you your your team is like a bunch of dudes. And so obviously you're, you're hoping that they're 
that they're trying to address that as well. But if a client mandate can take you from zero women on an on a creative account team to forty percent to fifty five percent, it seems like that number alone shows that there is some you know some clear benefit to doing this. Yeah, I think also what's interesting about HP's strategy um, compared to like General Mills, which did something similar last year, was that HP really let its agencies set their own um, goals instead of putting out quotas. Um, I think General Mills was like, you need 50% women and 20% people of color. But with HP, they were really working with the agencies and saying, like, what do you think is achievable um, in a year period? And I think that allows for a lot of flexibility, which, you know, helps instead of saying you need this, um, they kind of let them do their own thing. Well, definitely uh, take a look at adweek.com for Katie's article on uh, HP's uh, numbers and what all they'll be ruling out. They will have some of their agency partners uh, presenting some of that data as well at Advertising Week. Stepping aside from those two pieces, I'm just curious. Uh, we've all been looking at the calendar and trying to figure out what all we're going to attend this week. It's a hectic uh, schedule. There's so many tracks, so many sessions. They're all great. As Tim mentioned, the big difference to, to me between CAN and Advertising Week is that people actually go to the sessions at Advertising Week. Uh, whereas at CAN, it feels like unless it's a celebrity, it's a bunch of journalists and you know who maybe a handful of other people. Uh, you know, it's a small crowd. People are there for the parties and the celebrities. This one, man, you're lucky to get a seat uh, at some of these sessions uh, on some pretty nerdy topics. Tim, have you noticed any any trends this year in the sessions? You know, looking at the schedule, it seems like the, very much the, f- the familiar topics you know are coming up. You've got an AI track. There's there's a whole track about talking to millennials. Um, there's there's sessions about data, video, um, brand innovation. You know, it's not really anything out of left field, it seems like. Even female empowerment is, is a whole track on its own, which is a topic that in advertising that's been hot for, for several years now. Um, but you're right. Like you said, you know, even like when we're at Cannes, like we're guilty of it too. Like we don't go to that many sessions either because there's so much of a focus on awards. And, you know, at Advertising Week, you know, you're going to hit good panels and bad panels. Um, not everything's going to be that educational, but you will find things here and there that are pretty, pretty interesting. And, and if you spend a day or two days just kind of hanging out at a lot of the sessions and going to one after the other, you just kind of let everything soak in. And, you know, um, you just end up really feeling like um, you do have a better sense of what people are thinking, um, even if the topics themselves are fairly well known already. I feel like the big change I saw this year that was most noticeable is it used to be when you look at the agency tracks, it was like case studies in agency relationships. And there's some of those, like there's a Domino's uh, Crispin Porter case study uh, session. I believe it's like on a Wednesday yeah, I think there's Audi, Audi and Venables Bell are doing one of those too. Yeah, another great partnership there. Um, and, you know, so there's some of that. But the like Monday, every single agency session is about the future of agencies, the viability of the agency model. Should you start an agency? <laughs> like, it's all very dire. <laughs> Existential. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of existential dread, and 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 the sessions, the most uplifting sessions, are called things like, "Yes, you you should still start an agency, but <laughs> like literally the word but is in the title. <laughs> That's not good." Um, uh, Adweek so, is uh, involved in a few sessions. I think I mentioned this last week, but um, our managing editor Steph Patrick is moderating a panel about Fearless Girl this week on Thursday afternoon uh, with execs from State Street and McCann talking about that famous campaign. So that'll be. One to go to for sure. Now, Marty, are you you're moderating a few, right? Yeah, I think I have three. 
Good luck. <laughs> I've got two on Monday. One on um, oh, I've got one on Monday afternoon uh, with with Google and Walmart and some others looking at AI and 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 how does our online identity and 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 our online like media consumption shift our our preferences. And so that should be pretty interesting. Well, yeah, that it, and uh, we've got uh, – I, I should have had a list here of all of our sessions that we're involved with because there are quite a few. Um, but, uh, but yeah, definitely, you know, if you haven't checked out the calendar, if you're going to be in town for Advertising Week, uh, or if you just want to hit us up on Twitter and ask which ones we're going to be going to. Uh, I love running into people at these sessions uh, and, you know, because it's certainly a small world and, and you see people that, you know, you maybe haven't met in person. Uh, but it's always fun to see who turns out at the same sessions that you go to. Um, are there any on that note? I uh, just want to see if there are any other panels, specific panels or topics you guys are interested in covering. Uh, Katie, were there any that I, I know we've talked about ones that we kind of need to cover, but which ones are you actually personally interested in going to? Uh, there's a whole impact track this year that I think is really interesting uh, with some political notes to it. So I will be going to a couple of those. There's ones on the collective rise of creative activism. Um, a case for brands taking a stand. Uh, I think, you know, maybe you've seen a little bit of that in the past, but I think the tone and topic of those will be a little bit different this year. Uh, So those are some that I'm looking forward to. And obviously that millennial track, got to check in on that one. That feels almost like a, a year or two late. Like it feels like it should be like a Gen Z track, you know. Of the, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the, the, yeah. it's could, time to get away from millennial. Like for the, sure. Like eighty percent of the crowd are going to be millennials, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a little weird. But tell us about ourselves. <laughs> tell, <laughs> me, tell me my ways. Unlock my secrets. What do I need to like and buy and know? I don't know. <laughs> Why do I prefer experiences over products? Um, <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, uh, we are out of time for this week, uh, and we got a long week ahead of us. Uh, so definitely keep an eye on adweek.com because we're going to be chugging out so many stories on Advertising Week and on all sorts of other stuff. Uh, thank you so much, Katie, Marty. Uh, thank you, Tim. And thanks uh, to Jason for joining us earlier. Uh, it's uh, It's been a fun conversation. I can't wait to see what all comes out over the course of the week. Don't forget, you can email us at podcast at adweek.com, podcast at adweek.com. And you can hit me on Twitter if you just want to talk about stuff. I'm Griner. G-R-I-N-E-R on Twitter, G-R-I-N-E-R. Uh, I think Tim is Nud in U-D-D, so we're easy to find. Our theme music is by Home. Uh, this episode was produced by Christina Monlos and Charles Getz. Thank you, Christina and Charles. Uh, please take a moment, to, if you have not already, to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they also help new listeners discover the show. I'm David Greiner for Adweek, and we will be back next week. This week's episode was brought to you by NPR One, which offers listeners an experience that's personalized and seamless wherever people are listening. To learn how your brand can be part of that experience, visit npr.org slash sponsorship and request a demo. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Bible Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brain or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content, so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.